What's up, guys? This is Sean Nelson, and you are listening to the Starting Block Podcast. Guys, this is a show for complete athletic development. Our objective here is to give you guys the tools to win, whether you're the athlete, the parents, or the coach. Now, if you're new to our show, here's how we break down. We're a little unique, a little different than other shows out there. We have multiple episodes within the show. The first episode you're going to hear from us is going to be our Q&A. That's where myself and my co-host, Chris Scarborough. What's up, Chris? What's up, guys? Good afternoon. So that's where my co-host and I will answer the questions you guys submit to us. Guys, you can submit those questions to info at startingblockpodcast.com. We appreciate you submitting them that way rather than DMing us just so we can keep it organized. Those questions are going to be about training, performance, you know, strength, speed, power, agility, rehab, all that. We'll tackle it in Q&A. The second episode you get from us is our guest interview. That's where we bring our colleagues on from across the country and actually across the pond, too. And they're going to share their stories and uh, you know, and tools for winning and what they do with their clients, their patients. And that's actually what we have today is a guest interview. We'll bring our guest on here in just a second. And, uh, you know, as I always say, part of the objective with the guest interview is to help connect you with uh, like-minded individuals across the uh, the country, people that share the same mission and core values that we share. And we hope you're able to connect with them if you don't live, you know, local where Chris and I are out in Memphis or Birmingham. And then our final episode is going to be that Friday fire. In fact, that's about 10 to 20 minutes of me just giving you guys some real talk, just some info that I feel you need to hear, whether it's business, motivation, um, something along those lines. So that is our episode breakdown. We also ask you that you pay your dues, guys. Share the show, please. We do this for free. Uh, We do this because we want to connect you guys with people and want you guys to win. That's ultimately what we are trying to accomplish here, um, you know, whether you're the athlete, the parent, or the coach. So that's how we break down, share the show. And that is our housekeeping. And I think I got through that in record time because we're a little short on time today, and I want to go ahead and get our guest on. So without further ado, um, we're pleased to welcome back Zach Michael of Accelerate ACL for part two. What's up, bro? Welcome back. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. How's it going, fellas? Good to see you again. Good. You too, man. You too. We appreciate you coming coming on, man. I think, uh, you know, the first time that we did the episode, we were all kind of getting to know each other. And um, the episode, we got a lot of great feedback. And, and, you know, hopefully you did too. And I think you kind of opened people's eyes a little bit, you know, as to a different approach to ACL rehab and therapy. So it was good. I'm glad you took the time to follow up. Um, So, you know, one of the first things that I really want to get into today is, you know, in the first episode, we introduced you, you know, you shared who you were. So guys, if you're just now listening to this, I encourage you to go back to episode one. Um, I think that was probably back in the early 20 episodes or something. Um, Check out Zach from uh, Accelerate ACL. But today being part two, let's dive right into it, man. And we talked briefly before the show about where we wanted to go. And so why don't we just start with people that are coming to you, ACL recoveries that are behind schedule. You know, I feel like that's a fairly common thing. What is it that you're seeing in your facility, and how are you attacking that? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, in terms of behind schedule, uh, I guess that could come at, at all different stages of the, the recovery process, right? So um, <clears throat> whether it's something like early on in the process and, and they're dealing with range of motion problems and they're not getting the range of motion back, or uh, maybe later on in the process where – uh, they're starting to get into back to some return to sport activity and they're finding out that their their bodies aren't responding as, as well as they'd like to the increased load. 
um, or even something like, you know, uh, depending on, on what kind of therapist you're working with or what your doctor wants to see, uh, looking at things like quad strength symmetry. So, you know, how symmetrical are you from side to side uh, in terms of uh, how much force your quads can generate. So, what do you tend to find um, you know, is the, the most the behind common schedule? Thing. Yeah. I'd say the most common, I guess, maybe one of the most common causes or most common uh, things that we see throughout would be the inability to get into to full extension, um, you know, after ACL surgery. So being able to really fully straighten that knee. And uh, that also kind of comes in uh, a few different forms. Early on in the process, the goal is, is basically right for the athlete to be able to um, sit on a table and straighten their knee and, and get it as straight as they can and, and match the other side. Uh, and that's often where the box is checked for full extension. You know, an athlete might come and they say, I've got full extension, the knee's perfectly straight, we're good. But what we'll actually see is when we go to load that athlete, you know, further on in the process, yeah, they can, they can straighten that knee sitting on the table. But does their knee want to stay straight uh, when it needs to go into a, a triple extension or a double extension position with the hip uh, under some serious load? So something even like a, uh, maybe a single leg cap raise or something like that um, would be a, an easy way to assess that early. But even if you carry that on uh, later in the process to something like sprinting or jumping, uh, is the knee willing to fully extend and create and absorb those forces around the joint or not? And uh, when it's not doing that, um, you can think about that last bit of extension as, as the last little bit of force absorption that needs to happen around the knee, um, you know, in any of our, our really power, powerful movements. And instead of getting that last little bit of extension, where's that force going to go? In a lot of cases, it's going to go right into the knee and cause those, you know, those, those athletes to be behind schedule. So um, <clears throat> I'd say you know, throughout the recovery process, that's, that's a common factor that we'll see whether it be um, trying to get that full extension right off the bat or later in the process um, and when they're really under load and, and seeing if that knee is really willing to fully extend. Um, that's kind of one of the, the main contributing factors we'll see. So along that same line, Zach, so let's take someone that is, let's say they're, they're three months post-op versus yep. say someone is one year post-op. Okay. Yep. Do you, do you seem to, but they're but they're both behind schedule. Okay, they're yep. both behind schedule for their time frame. Mm-hmm. Do you seem to find better success, or I, maybe it's easier success with that person who's only three months post op than the person who's one year? Do you seem to find that does it, is it kind of the same as far as catching them up, so to speak? What it, what are, what's your experience? I wouldn't, I wouldn't put them on different time frames for as far as catching them up. You know, um, the 12 month is probably still going to be further longer, long than the three month person, you know, um, but both behind schedule for the respective time frames, Right. Right. Um, so I wouldn't put them on different time frames as far as getting caught up to, to where they should be. Um, you know, there's probably one of two things that we'd be looking at. It would be what we talked about in the last episode would be, you know, how well is that quad activating? Uh, on the ACL leg uh, compared to the, the non-ACL leg where, you know, we'd go into something like mapping um, with the newbie and, and determine, okay, what's what's the unique reason that this person is behind schedule that, that we're kind of finding through the mapping process. Um, and from there, you know, everything kind of follows a very similar time frame once we kind of figure out what's going on. Um, you know, What's uh, really interesting about the work that we do with these devices is that it really depends on the athlete, how hard they're pushing, how consistently they're getting after it. Um, 
but I wouldn't expect to see one take longer to get up to schedule than the other one. Yeah. By the way, and shout out to Garrett's help here with a new fit, uh, talking about the newbie. Uh, yeah. Shout out to you, Garrett. And uh, this, and this go, kind of goes back to what John and I have talked about in the past as well, and that is uh, <laughs> how you really can't compare a a you know typical E-STEM, you know, not knocking E-STEM, but we're not not your typical E-STEM with the DC device like a newbie. Mm-hmm. Um, there, we have no basis for comparison of the two. Um, you know, so, you know, we want to be very clear here that we're referring to the treatment is being done with a DC device, <laughs> not, sure. uh, you know, like a Russian stem or something, nothing gets those, yep. but it's not that it's not Russian stem. It's not EMS. It's not tens. It's a totally different type of device. So I want to be clear about that with our, with our listeners. Yeah. Now, I want to go back to a statement you just said. Um, for listeners who may not understand this, and I want, I want your take on it. So you, you made the comment that yeah. the quad might not be as active as it should be. Now, I know just from yeah. my personal experience, having done this for you know, 12 years now, that mm-hmm. I see people relate that to strength. And so they think, oh, just because yeah. I can do a leg extension, I can leg press, it's activated. Explain what you really mean there and actually how you measure that, you know, how active the quad truly is. Yeah, so uh, there'd be a couple ways to, to measure it. But what we see and look at early on in the process is how responsive it is uh, to the, the newbie uh, and the devices that, that we're using. So um, what we'll actually see is that uh, when we put you know, the stimulation on both quads, the quad that's been affected by the ACL injury will basically not respond um, <clears throat> to the current at all and um, until we get up to much higher levels of intensity. So um, that's pretty unique, you know, for us to see. And, and we will generally will only see it after ACL injuries or after maybe, you know, some other catastrophic or major knee surgery. Um, and that's the first way that we're kind of assessing it. And what we'll see over time is that that, that quad will become more and more active, more and more responsive. Uh, to the current over the first, you know, maybe two to six weeks that we're working just the, the quadriceps spots uh, with our clients. So uh, that would be a really unique lens on it that we can really only see through, you know, using technology like the, the Nubi. Um, and then later in the process, you look at things like limb symmetry index, which does does look a lot more like strength. Um, you know, but uh, even an athlete who thinks they're doing very well from a, a strength perspective will oftentimes show discrepancies on the limb symmetry index. So um, that would be another way to assess it later on in the process. Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting about something along that line is we've seen problems with limb symmetry with with simple surgeries, like scopes, mm-hmm. where something just shut that quad down. I mean, something's just shut it down. You know, and surely, you know, one of the, one of the uh, some of the sensory mechanisms in the joint are having some effect on that quad, but, but, you know, that's, that's one of those interesting things that the knee seems to be particularly susceptible knee surgery and people who've had knee surgery seem to be particularly susceptible to quad atrophy, quad, quad weakening and that sort of thing. Maybe at, for least some... been, at least my experience. 
maybe for some new practitioners and like, I, and, and Garrett, if you're listening to this, like, bro, you know, I'm not stepping on your toes, man. Like that's, you know, we love you, Garrett. So, but like first, first, maybe some, uh, you know, less experienced practitioners out there, I guess at what stage yeah. are you starting to really look for that? Because I mean, clearly, you know, especially in the beginning, I mean, we really got to follow, make sure that, you know, client safety is always priority number one, but you know what I'm trying to say. Like we don't want to elicit a massive amount mm-hmm. of contraction or something in the beginning because everything's still healing. Where do you tend to like to, um, you know, kind of start to push things just a little bit in conjunction with PT and what doctors are allowing um, to where you can really test the response mm-hmm. of it for the quad? So typically we'll start uh, pushing things more uh, at the same time that they're starting their, their PT exercise. So, um, you know, oftentimes that could be within the first week or two um, where we're starting to generate more of a quad contraction. Um, first week or so will be more about just keeping the tissue relaxed and using some of the lower level settings. Um, and, um, you know, maybe a, a gentle contraction a, a couple days in and then kind of building up from there. Now, as far as in addition to the quad, I mean, do you find that you is early on? We're we're still mm-hmm. early in the process. Yep. Do you do you treat another area besides the quads? I mean, do you treat the hamstrings, the gastroc? Do you do any other areas of the body besides the quad? Not for the first. Uh, you know, I kind of always say it's it's a combination of two things, right? It's the where we're stimulating, and then the exercise selection. So. Uh, even though where we're stimulating might not be the direct muscle groups that, you know, that's a common question we get. Hey, why aren't we working the hamstrings? Why aren't we working the calves? Why aren't we working other areas of the body with the stimulation? Uh, we know that priority number one is to get those quadriceps back online and make sure that that atrophy process doesn't take place. And if we want to create adaptation as quickly as possible, uh, you know, and with priority number one, then that's where we're going to stay and we're going to try to create that adaptation and show that adaptation with progress on the newbie. So, which means increasing intensity levels on the newbie, uh, increasing the duration of, of the, um, isometric holds that, you know, our athletes are working while stimulating those areas. Um, and the other thing that allows us to do, I mentioned earlier, the exercise selection, we can start loading other muscle groups like the hamstrings and, and calves and things like that through the exercise selection. Um, but we can also now look at, okay, how are the quads causing compensation with these other, uh, when we load these other muscle groups too, uh, with the exercise selection. So we don't necessarily look at the, the, the newbie as, Hey, we need to do work on these muscles. Um, let's put the pads on these muscles. It's more along the lines of if we stimulate these muscles, how's the body compensate uh, as a response to, you know, over overloading this, the, the stimulation of those muscle groups. And what do, how do we have to train the body to override that compensation, basically? Um, so not necessarily moving the pads around early on. We want to create that adaptation in the, in the, the quads, um, you know, with, with the technology and, and the exercise selection. Um, but then, you know, we are, we are looking still through the exercise selection to load other muscles at the same time. Well, it's interesting that you, you bring that up. And again, I mean, this is something that John and I have discussed on, on various podcasts in the past. And that is, you know, if, if I'm going to train the hamstrings, I'm, I'm actually going to, or if I want to concentrically train the hamstrings, I'm actually going to put the electrodes on my quads. Okay. We're not referring just to an ACL repair. We're referring to you know, any kind of training with a newbie or with a, with an ARP or whatever. But the interesting thing is, like you said, I mean, it's like 
we're not, just because we have that machine on the quads, it doesn't mean that we're just training the quads. Right. We're doing a lot more than that. So, um, but I do want to go into a little bit more on like certain case examples, Zach. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've had a few interesting cases in the past. I don't know if they were behind schedule or not, but, but people that were, um, I don't know, maybe they were behind schedule or maybe just somehow, I, anyway, give us, yeah, mm -hmm. you were telling me a couple of things before we even got on the air. What, yeah. what are some of the interesting cases that you've seen, uh, in, you know, uh, people that you've had as clients and that sort of thing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if, uh, kind of within the framework of, you know, um, being able to take somebody from, we're looking always at, at our data and, and some things, you know, average ACL recoveries and, and where clients fall uh, against the average uh, based on, um, we look at a lot of something called the left score um, to measure our, our clients' progress. And what we'll generally see is that if they're, they're starting behind the curve or under the curve for where the average ACL recovery is, we can bring them up and above the average ACL recovery within the first month of work. So it's pretty cool. We chart it all out. You know, we've got our our average ACL recovery line here. Maybe our client is is falling down here some at at some point when we first start with them. And basically, within the first month, we're going to have them on top of that curve so that they're now you know ahead of the average ACL recovery. Um, now, as, as far as you know, specific cases go, um, we talked a little bit before the show about one of our clients, uh, Saquon Barkley for the Giants. He um, came to us, I'm going to say about four or five months into the ACL recovery process. Uh, you know, primary goal was to be back and ready to go for week one of the, the following season. And uh, had just seen his doctor, one of the, the guys who does you know, tons of surgeries for, for these elite athletes out there. And um, he has an assessment that he uses that was on a 50-point scale, uh, you know, to kind of assess where uh, his his patients are at. And we were – what – when he came to us, he had just seen him for the first time uh, for this assessment and was deemed to be, you know, pretty far behind schedule. Um, then he start. He was actually it's interesting, kind of ties into your previous question there about pad placements and, and things like that. Uh, he had been using the newbie for a few weeks, but not really, um, uh, maybe within the framework of, of our protocols. And they were putting it in areas where they just kind of thought needed the work based off their eyeballing it, looking at the muscle and saying, okay, the muscle's not as big here. Let's put the pads here and do some work. And they weren't really getting a great result at the time. Um, so we took them through, you know, our protocols, which at that stage is probably going to start with, with some mapping. And uh, he was with, within seven weeks of that first assessment uh, with the doctor he was in the 95th percentile of all ACL recoveries the, the doctor had ever seen. So he went from um, a pretty, pretty, um, you know, the, the first assessment not not being so great, all the way up to you know the 95th percentile seven weeks later um, by doing some work within the framework of our protocols. So um, that kind of speaks to that uh, behind schedule. You know, depending on who you talk to, whether you know the athlete's behind schedule or not, but maybe not coming along as quickly as they'd like. And within you know just seven weeks of time, and I'd say even shorter, uh, oftentimes you know our clients are able to really get on top of that curve that I alluded to earlier, and and um, make sure their recovery gets back on track. Well, as a Giants fan, Wait. I'll tell you, thank you for all your work on uh, getting Saquon <laughs> healthy. I greatly appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> Let's. Um, 
Let's keep talking about a few other like case examples there. Um, you know, yeah. what, uh, what are some other, you know, success stories that you've had that, you know, maybe were pretty challenging. Like maybe, you know, we go back to like a range of motion thing or, um, you know, maybe a second tear and just, I don't know. I just want to hear maybe more of like some high school or more relatable, um, scenarios. Cause I think some people, you know, as much as I, I love talking about Saquon, I could talk about Saquon all day. Like what about the average high school athlete <laughs> though, that train, you know, that, that tears his ACL and doesn't have access to, you know, yeah. unlimited, you know, therapy and equipment. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that one, a couple that come to mind, uh, maybe some college, you know, athletes, um, that we worked with in the past, um, find us around the, the five month mark, six month mark. Uh, they really want to be back to running at that point. You know, they're, they're athletes through and through and, um, you know, haven't been able to do a whole lot athletically for the you know, previous six to eight months. And they're not really getting clearance maybe from the training staff or, um, they're still having significant levels of pain despite having clearance from their training staff. We'll find a lot of athletes in those situations. Um, and, you know, same, same kind of principles, you know, that we talked about and you know, to the question earlier, where it's three months or 12 months, um, we're not going to do too much differently from a protocol you know, perspective um, as far as exercise selection goes and, and getting into some, some mapping and, and things like that. Um, but, what we'll generally see is that whatever that obstacle is or that, that hurdle is uh, that the athlete's dealing with at that stage, whether it be pain in the knee or mechanics, or maybe it's they're they're not, they don't have the quad strength symmetry that their training staff's looking for. You know, we're really able to help them push that timeline and make sure that they're able to get, get to where they want to be. Um, yeah. I often will, will tell clients about one to two months of work is, is what we would expect to, to need to, to get them where they want to be at that point. So you made you know the what comment I think is, there is, about is, so we, some pain levels right there. So let's dig into that too. Like, you know, yeah. we talked about applying, yeah. you know, pain science principles during a return and how a lot of these people are mm -hmm. pushing through, you know, pain at four, five, six level. Like, speak yeah. on that a little more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's, uh, especially when you get into these college athletes, high school athletes where, uh, you know, if you ask them to jump, they'll say how high. Uh, they'll do anything you ask them to do, and uh, you know, pain is really not even something that obstructs them from from doing anything. They'll, they'll just push right through it and, and be able to get after it. Um, we we'll see a lot that uh, let's say they get back to running, they get back to jumping, and they're going to uh, just go right through the pain, uh, and and maybe they won't even communicate too well about how much pain they're feeling. Uh, you might have to dig in a little more on them. But uh, what we see is that if they're pushing through higher levels of pain, um, you know, you mentioned the four or five, six out of 10 levels, that can kind of start a whole uh, cascade of, of events that's going to just keep them stuck or delay their recovery further. Um, you know, pain is, is something in, in the brain that is telling us that it, it thinks there's a threat there. And uh, when the brain thinks there's a threat, it has, I guess, two decisions it can make. It can... It, it's analyzing that threat and it's saying, uh, is this, is this threat worth, you know, me shutting things down further so that, uh, you know, we don't have any more of this pain or we don't have any more of this threat. I need to tell the athlete, you know, stop doing this. So I need to shut things down further with additional pain or, or maybe start deactivating some muscles or 
is this uh, a threat that you know I'm kind of so-so about, and I haven't yet determined whether or not it's it's something significant. But as it sees it more and more, uh, more reps of it, the pain actually starts to drop off and, and maybe go down to to lower levels. So, um, in terms of uh, you know what we'll see with a lot of these athletes that'll um, you know kind of push through high levels of pain. It's that, that first option that the brain is seeing and saying, hey, this is a serious threat here. Um, you know, we're going to elevate pain levels because you keep, you know, pushing through this, this level of pain to try to get you to stop. We're actually going to start deactivating muscles again, which in ACL world, we, we're doing so much work to, um, you know, get that quad back online. We're doing so much work to get that full extension. Um, but pushing through that pain is kind of taking us steps backwards at times. Uh, and, and causing the body to want to compensate even more. So, uh, you know, we'll guide our, our athletes at that stage, uh, low levels of pain, ones, twos, threes, generally pretty good and, and productive to be able to work through and, 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 and kind of explore further. When those pain levels go above, you know, that level to fours, five, sixes, seven, eight, nine, tens, uh, that's probably a good sign that wherever we're at for today, it's, uh, it's a good time to, kind of document how much work we were able to get in so we can say, yeah, the body's comfortable doing this much and maybe shut things down and look to build on it the next step. Um, so in, in doing so, we're kind of working with the brain, with the body to say, hey, um, we understand that you know, this is starting to feel more threatening today. Um, you know, next time we come back, we're going to have a little bit better ability to, to do this activity and kind of see if we can do more of it before those pain levels start to elevate. So when you're referring to pain levels, you're referring to like knee pain, not intensity on the machine, correct? Or are you mm -hmm. a little bit both? Yeah, this would be uh, these pain levels would be uh, more testing uh, off the device. So once we get off the device, um, or maybe they're not even working with us. Maybe they're working with you know we don't uh, their athletic training staff or something like that, or their coaches. Uh, this, so that, yeah, this would be knee pain that's associated with work they're doing off the device. Um, you know, we do always try to differentiate between, uh, we'll even say discomfort on the device and pain uh, as being something separate. Uh, because of course we are encouraging athletes to, to push to high intensities and high levels of, of discomfort on the device. Um, that is not the same type of pain as their, their knee symptoms. Right. Yeah, Why do you the, feel that um, it is that so many of these athletes or even just, you know, weekend warriors get to a point where they're, you know, five months post-op or something and are still experiencing these types of pain levels? Because I feel like that's one of the most common things that I tend to see personally is maybe not mm -hmm. a lack of range of motion, but still above a three pain level. Why do you think that happens? Um, I mean, I think it can happen for a number of reasons. Uh, I think, you know, if you're, if we're alluding to athletes, uh, weekend warriors, uh, you know, people who are used to really pushing themselves, right? Uh, maybe they haven't been listening to that pain throughout, right? So, you know, I like to think of it on a spectrum where we're kind of bringing the body along on a spectrum smartly, um, you know, by listening to those low levels of pain, stopping when we go above and building our ability to, do more and more of the activity at those low levels of pain. But maybe in the case of somebody who's you know, used to pushing, um, we're seeing that they're just constantly pushing into those five, six levels of pain over and over and over and over again. So they're not really, I think the general school of thought out there, even uh, that we run into sometimes, um, 
you know, with athletes that are getting uh, guidance from elsewhere too, is that if you just keep pushing through the pain, it'll eventually go to wet, go away. You just need your body to be exposed to it more. Um, that, and that's true again for those lower levels of pain, but it becomes those unproductive levels of pain, those fives and six of, you know, maybe to your point about five months, maybe they've been doing it since month one, you know, maybe they've been working on their range of motion and the, the message has been like, who cares how much pain you have? You need to get through that range of motion, which, you know, can be a school of thought, especially early on in the process. But if that carries through the entire time, then you're never really um, allowing the body to adapt and you're never really creating the change and the perception for the brain that uh, it's a lesser, lesser threatening activity to do. By the way, while we're here, I want to share uh, a story very quickly. Who I, I got permission from one of my clients, Zach, after sure. I consulted with you, um, who's a, a kid who a football player, college football player, um, had just had uh, ACL and meniscus surgery. So he was non-weight bearing for three weeks uh, post-surgery. Mm-hmm. He sought to go be non-weight bearing. Um, all he had to compare himself with was a was a, 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 a friend of his that had had ACL reconstruction, did not have meniscus surgery. Well, within a month, one month post-op, now keep in mind the first three weeks of this, he's non-weight-bearing. Mm-hmm. She was weight-bearing. She was weight-bearing as tolerated almost from the get-go. One month after his surgery, he had already surpassed her range of motion levels, her you know, strength levels, if you will. Um, I used exactly the, the, the protocol that, Zach, that you told me to go with and... Literally within, he's now eight weeks post-op, okay, eight weeks post-op. He walked in last week. He only comes in once a week now to get a treatment. He walked in last week. There's no noticeable limp. He's out of the brace. He's out of everything. The only time you would even know he had any kind of surgery whatsoever was when he started walking downhill. You noticed Mm -hmm. a little bit of a limp, if you will, but it was not. I mean, it was almost, it was pretty much unperceivable when he was walking on level ground. Um, no brace, no nothing, eight weeks post-op. Um, so I want to, <laughs> I, I just want to, I want to, I want to give you a shout out for the protocols that ACL, that Accelerate ACL uses. They work. Now, granted, I have an N of one, right? I have one person to go, you know, to go by, sure. but that's, pretty good i mean let's face it three three weeks of that he was non-weight bearing yeah i I appreciate you sharing the story and um yeah n equals one for you n equals uh you know many on our side of things and you know um i think there's a lot of maybe other practitioners out there too have you know really good success stories um and and that non-weight bearing phase can be a real you know real difficult time in terms of getting out of that um you know for an athlete so uh, the fact that he's able to respond so quickly is, is great and speaks to the work that, you know, I'm sure he was, he was pushing himself pretty hard to drive those results and, and you were pushing him at the same time. So, uh, awesome work there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah. He did a great job. And John got a store story. Yeah. That's uh that, that three weeks non weight bearing is I've actually, I have a kid I'm working with right now. Say same thing, ACL and meniscus. And, uh, basically mm-hmm. after his first session with any type of active current, we're able to actually, do a straight leg lift, non, non, you know, no brace. And, 
um, happened within yeah. 15 minutes. So it was pretty cool to see that. So, um, you know, he's uh, always a fun magic trick. Be, yeah, I know. I know. It's like a magic trick. Um, but let's, uh, yeah. all right. So we've been talking about success stories, man, and, and it's awesome. And ultimately, yep. that's uh, our goal is to help people win. Let's talk about, though, maybe a scenario or two where we've hit some roadblocks. All right. Um, I can think of it. I can think of one example. I have a client actually, he is a uh, collegiate uh, lacrosse player, very high level um, collegiate lacrosse player. He's actually had two ACLs and a meniscus. Um, and the kid actually has a newbie himself. Um, I believe only half of the meniscus is still there. Um, I can't remember the exact, exactly how much, but not all of it's there. And this kid can take the newbie all the way up. No trouble whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, hundred every time still has pain. And, you know, he's looked at by team doctors, our local providers. I mean, a number of people, and there's just, there's a lot of different theories, but one of the interesting things that I tend to see with this individual is his hamstring is always a hot spot always and it will not go away thoughts on that mm -hmm. and he's uh he's maxing it out at, so even though he's consistently hitting 100 on the hamstring there uh it's being maxed out um, I, I i don't know if he's gotten to 100 on the hamstring i i think he has but i know he can get to 100 on many other places yeah Right, so he he can push and he's he's working hard at it. Um, you know, I guess that that would be my first question, right? Is is how much is he getting to a hundred uh, on that spot? Um, if he is, how long has he been working there? Um, you know, generally, let's say um, within week one, if he's somebody who can push, he's getting to a hundred with uh, a pattern that is maybe in a, like a supported or assisted squat or uh, uh, something along those lines. And then we hope that he's spending maybe two to three weeks hanging out at 100 doing ISO work, um, you know, for, for five minutes at a time and in various different positions. So um, if he was doing something, if he did a month of work like that and still had a hot spot on his hamstring, I think I'd be pretty surprised. Yeah. Um, now, if he's not able to get to 100 and it's like every single day he's coming out and he's getting to 60 and he just can't get through it, uh, I guess questions I would have is, you know, is there is there a comp questions I start asking myself in those situations? Is is there a compensation that I'm just not seeing, uh, or like something that um, because right when when they keep hitting intensities and they run into these roadblocks, that's an that's uh, an indication that whatever adaptation needs to happen to to be able to get past that intensity, that adaptation isn't occurring, and we'd expect it to happen within the given session. So. Um, that's maybe I'm looking at something like an athlete that keeps hitting 60 over and over again. And, um, even when they work at 60, the intensity never drops down as they do more reps of it, which it should be dropping down as they do more reps because that's, you know, we're creating that adaptation. Um, then I, I need to start asking myself, you know, is, is there something going on there that is, is I'm not seeing whether it's just cause I'm, I'm not, I don't have a good enough eye or it actually is imperceptible. And uh, maybe I'll start asking a lot more questions about what they're feeling, how that pad is inhibiting them from doing the movement correctly. Um, you know, the, what they're feeling there is, is how it's trying to inhibit them. 
um, to help figure out is there compensation happening there that that we can break through and help to get even higher on the intensities. Um, other ones I would ask if they're not getting you know that high, uh, able to break through would just be things like optimizing all the factors outside of uh, the newbie work and outside of the recovery process. So you know are they are they fueling properly with good protein and water? Are they getting good sleep? Because um, that can cause day to day variability and in, in how intent how much intensity somebody can work to. Um, so those would be you know, first thoughts that, that come to mind there. Uh, again, if he's maxing out at 100 and just crushing it and that hamstring's still a spot, then uh, I'd probably you know, um, have more questions and, and want to sit on it a little longer, I think. Yeah, I <laughs> know yeah, that's a tough one to put on the spot for you right there. But it kind of led yeah. to the second part of the uh-huh. question, and, and I set it up that way intentionally because yeah. we've been talking a lot about the mm-hmm. quad, right, and, and, mm-hmm. and its importance, yeah. but – the hamstring, for example, keeps popping up. And have you seen anything like that? And and how big of a role, I guess, do you see that posterior chain being in this type of you know recovery process? For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, I mean, the posterior chain's huge. Um, you know, it's a lot. We've got a lot of the force absorbers, right? Or the, the force creators and things like the quad when we talk about. Uh, the knee joint going into extension, um, posterior chain needs to be able to work to absorb those forces um, going into that fully extended, you know, powerful position. So, um, when we do our work, you know, to speak a little more even generally, we'll focus on the quads maybe for the first one to two months of work, and that's where the stimulation will go. From there, we're going to go into mapping, and and we're going to determine you know where those hot spots are and, and start working those. So. Uh, that's kind of the beauty of, of the mapping is it'll tell us where that work needs to be done and, and where the most efficient work can be done um, with the newbie. And if it's on the hamstring, then that's definitely a good indication for us that that you know, posterior chain needs some more work. By the way, I, I didn't, yeah, I know we're not in, we're, we're not trying to, uh, you know, give Garrett a big head or anything like mm-hmm. that on today's podcast, but let's face it. You have to have a device like a newbie in order to be able to do what you've used the word mapping on a few different times. And so, and we've also used the, the, the term hotspot a couple Mm -hmm. of different times. You, you map to try to find a hotspot. That's the spot. That's the muscle or the area that's not absorbing forces properly. And about the only way that we're aware of that you can truly find that spot is to use a device like the newbie. So, uh, you know, like I said, we're not trying to give Garrett a big head here, but that's, that's what the, the beauty of these devices are in that, you know, you can find where is the problem, you know, the, the very specific problem. So anyway, Zach, I just wanted to go, you know, so yeah, so our audience is not confused. What does that mean mapping? You know, what is right. that? You know, <laughs> what is yeah. that? You know, so I have some idea of what we're talking about. Yep. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for adding that in there. So, so um, yeah, wrap, wrap up with, you know, one or two things that, you know, like I said, we've already had episode one. So episode two here. So let's kind of keep that theme there. Like when you have somebody, you know, coming to you, you know, who's a little bit behind schedule. If you give them one piece of advice, you know, what uh, what would you say to them? Um. I think probably two of the main themes of of what we talked about today were, you know, be smart about pain levels that you're working into, uh, especially as you're starting your return to sport activities 
And I'm not somebody say, somebody who says don't push into any pain. It's just being smart about what's productive pain and unproductive pain. So, uh, again, ones, twos, threes, generally going to be pretty good to work through. Anything above that, probably just a good indication that whatever you're doing needs to be modified for right now so that you can get better and better at it or just, you know, uh, needs to be stepped down on intensity level for right now until, um, you know, the body kind of adapts to a lower intensity of it. And then the second thing would be, you know, just keep on drilling over and over again uh, for your body, loading in full extension, full knee extension. So, uh, you know, it's not something that I see as, as something that an, an ACL, you know, um, athlete ever really should move on from. They need to keep on showing their body the fully extended position and loading in it. Um, so whether that be, <clears throat> you know, to really focus isometric work, uh, maybe in like a single leg calf raise um, or, or something along those lines, you just need to keep on exposing your body to it and making sure you have access to it so that your brain doesn't lose uh, that thought process of, of what it feels like and, and what it needs to be able to get. Good advice, man. Good advice as always. All right. Reminder, where can everybody find you? Uh, can find us on online at accelerateacl.com or our Instagram, uh, accelerate underscore ACL. Awesome. Bro, it's been great to catch up with you again. I appreciate you taking the time to come out and join us again. And maybe we'll do part three again down the road, man. Absolutely. Yeah. It's always great getting together with you guys. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks That's again, the Zach. show, guys. Yep. Thank Share you. the show, guys. Thank you.